In your Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I'm going to start out asking a quick question. Is Christianity a religion? No. No? Okay. What do, what do the rest of you guys think? Is Christianity a religion? It's a lifestyle. Okay. You said it depends. Yeah. It depends who you ask. I'm asking you. It's a relationship with God. Okay. Good. Good. When we define the word religion, it takes on a different form and a different shape than what we have in Christianity. And just like Mariana said, it's, it's a lifestyle. And, and, and he said it's a relationship. Religion, as we understand it, define it in, in our you know, day-to-day life nowadays, is that it's, it's a sort of like social construct. It's, it's like a set of rules. It's, it's a system that you have to abide by and, and follow. Okay? So take a look at what Father Alexander Schmemann says. Christianity, however is in a profound sense the end of all religion. In the gospel story of the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus made this clear. And so he, he references this dialogue that he, that he has with the woman. Sir, the woman said to him, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Worship the Father. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Okay, so, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So He's not telling her, Forget about this idea of worship that you have in mind. Forget about any sort of system that you're thinking of. You know, go do whatever you want. Worship however you want in whatever way you want. But he's directing her attention to the spirit and truth of worship. Okay? So, Father Alexander continues to say, She asked him a question about cult. And in reply, Jesus changed the whole perspective of the matter. Nowhere in the New Testament, in fact, is Christianity presented as a cult or as a religion. Religion is needed where there is a wall of separation between God and man. But Christ, who is both God and man, has broken down the wall between man and God. He has inaugurated a new life, not a new religion. Because He Himself was the answer to all religion, to all human hunger for God. Because in Him, the life that was lost by man, and which could only be symbolized, signified, asked for in religion, was restored to man. Okay? So, that, that's a mouthful, but what we can take away from that is, in this dialogue, the Samaritan woman, who has this abstract idea of who God is, remember the Samaritans, like we mentioned last week, don't recognize the the Nevi'im and the the Ketuvim, the, the 
writings of the prophets and the wisdom books, they just recognize the Torah. Okay, So they don't have the fullness of the scriptures and the Old Testament. But to her, she knew something about worship and that it should be in Jerusalem and that worship belongs to the Jews. Okay, But what he's telling her is it's not about the sort of system where there's a, a certain place and a certain way, a bunch of rules that you got to follow. But there is a foundation. And he says that foundation is not in some sort of religion. It's not in, a, in, in, in an understanding of a cult or a bunch of rules. It's in spirit and truth. Okay? And this becomes the foundation of Christianity. It becomes the foundation of the church as a whole. Because we could stray to one side and say, forget about religion. And with that we say, forget about the church as a whole. Forget about the, the system of worship. Forget about the body of Christ in the church. We just want to live our life in freedom. Worship however way I want. And you know, I read my Bible. I pray to God on my own in my room. I confess to Him whenever I feel convicted on my own. And that's it. Okay? That's an extreme sense of this liberal understanding. Okay? And then on the other side, there's an extreme where it's totally a set of rules. And it presents Christianity as a religion or a cult. Okay? What we want to do today is, is emphasize the significance of the church, not as a religion or a cult, but at the same time within this system of of freedom and worship in spirit and truth, in which we will experience the fullness of the sacramental life that exists in the church. Okay, So for us to understand the sacramental life that we're going to talk about today, we've got to understand what the church is. Okay, and, and we know that in the church is the, the authority of the Christian life. Okay, Last week we spoke about the scriptures as a product from the church. Okay, because the church is the, the ultimate authority. It's the pillar upon which the scriptures stand. Today, we want to look at the sacramental life that we experience in the very same way as we understood the scriptures. It is a product of the life in the church. We always see this picture that illustrates the idea of the church, which is the ark. Okay? And if you read the commentary about the, the flood and how everyone was saved that was in the ark, all the fathers tell us over and over again that this ark is the church. Okay? And everybody that was not in the ark drowned. There was no salvation outside the ark. Okay? That's why Bishop Callistus where it says, Orthodoxy teaches us that outside the church, there's no salvation. A man cannot have God as his father if he does not have the church as his mother. So wrote St. Cyprian. And to him, to St. Cyprian, this seemed an evident truth because he could not think of God and the church apart from one another. Okay, so that's why we say there is no salvation outside of the church. There was no salvation outside of the ark. Noah was telling everybody, get in the ark. This is what's going to save you. 
And sure, the Ark is going to have a lot of problems. And Father Thomas Hopko is actually talking about how, uh, how, how we could we could think of the Ark as this smelly, chaotic, and, and this place filled with dirty animals and whatever. And, and just like in the church, we have a whole lot of problems, right? But the Ark is what will save you. Okay? Yeah, the Ark isn't perfect in, in, in our understanding of what fills it because we, we fill the Ark with our weaknesses and our frailties. But it's what will save you because in the Ark is the work of the Spirit. Okay? That's why we, we understand the church as the fullness of the Christian life. Okay? So, we, we want to emphasize that the church is, is the pillar of truth. Okay? The church is infallible. The church is infallible. It, it cannot stray. Because in the church, like St. Paul writing to Tim- Timothy, he says, it is the pillar and the ground of truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. So, yes, the church is filled with frail, earthly, sinful men. Okay? But as it's established by Christ, it's the pillar of truth. Okay? It's still nevertheless the work of the Spirit and it's founded just as it was by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and remains until this day infallible. Okay, Father Thomas Hopko says, The church, as the gift of eternal life, is by its very nature, in its fullness and entirety, a mystical and sacramental reality. It's the life of the kingdom of God given already to those who believe. Okay? The church, as the gift of life eternal, is by its very nature, in its fullness and entirety, a mystical and sacramental reality. It is the life of the kingdom of God given already to those who believe. Why, why is the church the gift of life eternal? Why is it like in its fullness and entirety, the fullness of everything we have existing in the church? Because in the church, we experience the sacramental life. Outside of the church, there is not a single sacrament. And we are, we are saved only through the sacramental life. We are saved only by participating in the work of the church. That's why the fathers always stressed, outside of the church there is no salvation. And if anyone is saved, the fathers will teach us, they are in some way or another linked to the church. Maybe not in our physical understanding of the church structure and, and the, the walls that... that, that you know, surround the church itself. But if they are to be saved, they must be connected to the church. Okay? So, the reason is, which will be our focus for our whole time together tonight, is that in the church is the sacramental life. Okay? So, what what does that really mean? The sacramental life. What, what is... A sacrament. Okay? That's the question I want to ask now. What is a sacrament? So in the St. Basil liturgy, remember the priest takes some of the incense from the censer during a certain part of the liturgy and he says, 
He instituted for us this great mystery of godliness for being determined to give himself upon to death for the life of the world. And as he's saying that, he's taking the incense and he's transferring it to the bread and the wine. He does that three times. What is that all about? If you think of the smoke, how can you describe it? Like, what is its shape? What is its form? The the smoke is shapeless, it's formless. It doesn't have any distinct boundaries. If you try to distinguish the place of the smoke from the air, you'll have an extremely difficult time doing so. You can't isolate the smoke from its surroundings with like a clearly defined boundary okay so the smoke is in itself mysterious the smoke is a mystery how it kind of you know rises from the sensor and it just dissipates into the air one way or another there's like a mystery in this in the nature of the smoke and so what the priest is doing by transferring this Smoke, which is by its very nature mysterious to the bread and the wine, is that he's pointing to the relation that this bread and wine has with this smoke. So just as the smoke is mysterious, what's happening on the altar is also what? Mysterious. That's why I said that, that he instituted for us this great mystery. Of godliness. So that just as we look at what's on the altar, this bread and this wine, we can only understand it as a mystery. Because it's not just bread and wine. In some mystical way, it's body and blood. In some mystical way, it transforms us into Christ. Okay, so if you try to wrap your head around the form of the smoke, which is something even physical. How could you wrap your head around this bread and wine becoming body and blood and then converting us into Christ? The word sacrament comes from the Greek mysteria. The, the word sacrament is actually a very poor word to use. It's, it's better for us to use the word mystery itself. Okay, so, mysteria is the singular and mysterion is the plural. Okay, so, clearly from the Greek you see the very same root as mystery. So, mysteria or mysterion, mystery. The root is the verb mayo, which means to close the eyes for the purpose of protecting them from an extraordinary vision. So, the, the mio or mayo is like you're, you're closing your eyes, and in a sense, what is in front of you is hidden. Right? When your eyes are closed, you can't see. There's something secretive going on. And in Arabic, the, the, the word makes it even clearer. Right? Because the Arabic word for sacrament is sir. Right? Al-asrar, the mysteries or the sacraments. Sir is literally... Secret, like, ta'ala ullak sir. Come, I want to tell you a secret. Okay? So, you see that there's something hidden. 
And not only is it hidden in a mystical way, but it's hidden in the sense that it is so much greater than what your eyes can behold. There is so much splendor and magnificence there that your physical eyes cannot grasp the reality of what exists. That's why we say the angels desire to behold what we have on the altar, but they cannot. Like the angels cannot even, you know, glance at what we have to partake of. We have a grace so far greater than anything we can imagine. Okay? So let's look at what St. Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians. So chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of which was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay? I want to focus on that very last part. That we all, with unveiled faces, so that this veil, he says, is taken away in Christ... Right Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom, there is vision, there is sight. So we can see, because now the veil is taken away. And so, having been given that vision by the work of the spirit, we all, with unveiled faces, behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, in this mystical process, in this sacrament, the veil is lifted in Christ, and the sacramental life is given to us now for our transformation. That he says here, that beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being what? Transformed. This becomes the very essence and purpose of the sacramental life, our transformation. So the, the, the Spirit works in the sacraments, in the mysteries, so that in some mysterious way, we become transformed. And that's why the, the fullness of our life with God is in the church, because in the church are the sacraments, and the heart of our transformation, the heart of our growth and and assimilation to Christ is through the work of the Spirit that exists in the sacraments. Okay? St. John Chrysostom says that we see one thing and we believe another. This is how he defines the sacraments. That something mysterious is happening. We see one thing, like we see bread and wine, but we don't believe that that's all it is. We believe that it's the body and blood of Christ. Whenever Christ was trying to explain this, 
he was talking to Nicodemus and he's telling him that this is a mystery and Nicodemus is trying to wrap his head around it. And you know how the conversation goes, Nicodemus doesn't get much of an answer. But Christ is telling him, it's beyond you and he's still trying to figure out how this works. So in John 3, he's telling Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And do you not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay, if I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So if you can't wrap your head around the nature of the wind, right, and how it goes and how it moves from one place to another, and, and its substance, how will you wrap your head around the work of the Spirit? How, how will you wrap your head around this mystery where we walk into church, we eat something, and we become converted into Christ? Now, of course, that's an oversimplification, but at the end of the day, is that not what happens? How so? I can't tell you. There's a mysterious work in the Spirit. And the worst thing we could do is try to rationalize it. And, and what Christ was doing here is trying to protect Nicodemus and everybody who looks at this account from trying to rationalize it. Other churches, especially in the West, you see, you see what happened whenever we, we looked at the development of the church, especially in the Catholic Church. They, they wanted to rationalize a few things and they wanted to explain how exactly the bread and the wine go into the body and the blood of Christ. And they invented terms like transubstantiation. And it started to complicate a whole lot of what happens in the church. Okay, So the sacraments are mysteries. And the Spirit works in a mysterious way to transform us. And apart from that link, we have no salvation. We have no communion with Christ. Okay, We have no transformation outside of the church. Because in the church is the fullness of the sacramental life. So how can we define the mysteries or the sacraments? I don't like to give exact definitions, but just for the sake of simplifying this, we can say that a sacrament is an invisible or mystical grace translated through a visible or physical aspect for the individual's transformation. Alright? So, it's an invisible or mystical grace translated through a visible physical aspect for the individual's transformation. So we receive a grace that's invisible. Right? We receive Christ Himself. You know, Christ can't be contained in a loaf of bread and a chalice. But we receive Him through what? Through bread and wine. And the purpose of that is for what? Our transformation. And the Spirit works 
in translating that grace to us. So we receive that grace and it's always through something physical. Okay? So everything sacramental is for what? For our transformation. Everything sacramental is transformational. We can say that for every sacrament, there are always three components. There's the work of the Spirit, the clergy or the priest, and the physical component. Okay? It's a simple way to put it, for every sacrament. Okay. Why do we always use something physical? Alright. Let's look at the prayer that the priest prays at the end of baptism. And just by bringing your attention to this prayer, I feel like that alone will answer the question as to why we always use something physical. Okay? And just to give you a little bit of context about where this prayer uh, is found, it's at the very, very end of the baptism and the priest is going to now take this water and he's going to empty it, kind of dump it right back into the, the grass or wherever he's going to dispense the water. Okay? So he's going to take this water and he's going to dump it out. But right before he dumps it out, he prays this prayer over the water. Alright, so take a look at what he says. He says, O Master Lord, God the Pantocrator, the Creator of all, out of nothingness, with your true wisdom, you are he who has gathered the waters in the beginning into one place. You've ordained order over all creatures according to the greatness of your power and understanding which are infinite. O you, O our Master, have made this water pure through the grace of your Christ and the descent of your Holy Spirit upon it. It became to your servants who have been baptized therein a washing unto the new birth and the renewal from the old deception. They've been enlightened by the light of your Godhead. Okay, so before we continue, what's everything that was said? Basically that you created everything out of nothing. You gathered the water in your creation from the very beginning. And now the water that exists here today, you purified through the grace of your Christ and the descent of your Holy Spirit upon it. Okay, And he says, it has become through... Through this grace, to your servants who have been baptized therein, a washing unto the new birth and renewal. Alright? So he's saying, you did all of this. Okay? Because basically we're all done. You know, the child got baptized. It's over. Okay? Okay, now take a look at what, what he says in the very next part. We pray and entreat you, O good one, a lover of mankind, to change this water to its former nature that it may return to the earth one more time as at every other time. And we too be a helper and a deliverer for us that we may glorify you at all times, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so this water was something special, right? It was sanctified by the grace of your Christ and, and the descent of your Holy Spirit upon it. It became a vessel for your servants, for their renewal, for their transformation, for their rebirth. Okay? But now, 
We're about to toss it, so this water's got to go back to its former nature. Because th- this water is now consecrated water. I mean, this is something sacred. Imagine if the priest you know, gives out communion, and at the end he has like a few pieces left, and he just tosses it. That'd be absurd. It's exactly like tossing this water. Okay, but obviously in communion, we can partake the rest of the, the mysteries, the body and the blood of Christ. We can consume whatever is left. For the water, it's different. Right? What do we do with the water that was just consecrated? So because something physical has become a sacred vessel, it now has to return back to its former nature. In the sacraments, everything physical is sacred. Okay, now, if you look at the nature of the physical world, as it was first created, you know, go back a few weeks whenever we were talking about creation. What do you remember we said about the, the physical world? Remember how God created everything and He saw that it was what? He, it was good. And that He placed everything in the world for whose sake? For man's sake, right? Everything in the world became a tool or a vessel for man's edification. The physical world was sacred for Adam. Okay? So, in the, because the material world and all nature was created and intended to be a source of transformation for, for Adam and all humanity, a channel for the sacramental life and to direct man to God. Everything in the world was intended to cause man's elevation to God in a mystical way. So the world was created in its very nature. The physical elements were created to be sacramental. Okay? But because now we, we live in the fallen world, remember whenever Christ or God spoke to Adam, He said, out of the ground it will produce for you thorns and thistles, cursed is the ground for you, right? But before that, what was the nature of the ground? It was sacramental. It was sacred. Everything physical was holy. It was intended to be a tool for man's contemplation of God. Right? It was intended to direct him to God. It was intended to spark his transformation. Okay? So that looking at the material world would lift the mind of man back to God. So all things were meant to be sacred. St. Isaac the Syrian says, Just as we have two physical eyes, so we have two spiritual eyes. With one of these eyes, we contemplate the glory of God's nature. But with the other, we see aspects of His glory hidden in His creatures. Okay, So we have the physical eyes where we could literally see the elements in front of us. Okay? And we can contemplate God's glory through the beauty of nature and everything around us. But with the spiritual eyes, 
we see aspects of His glory hidden in His creatures. Okay? So that everything physical was supposed to reveal to us something about God. This was the very intention of creation. Remember, He has placed everything under our feet. Everything was for our sake. Well, for our sake, in what way? To lift us up. Because what could be better than giving us infinite tools to direct our mind to God? That was the whole cosmos. The stars, the birds, everything around us was to reveal something about God to man and in doing so, causing His transformation. That's what makes the physical world sacramental. That's what makes the physical world mysterious. Father Alexander Schmemann says, In the Bible, a name is infinitely more than a means to distinguish one thing from another. It reveals the very essence of a thing, or rather, its essence as God's gift. To name a thing is to manifest the meaning and value God gave it. To know it as coming from God and to know its place and function within the cosmos created by God. So in naming the animals, we see that God gives Adam a hidden glance at his own splendor. Okay? St. Ephraim the Syrian says, The substances of their natures correspond to what their names signify. So, so we spoke about this event whenever Adam is naming the animal. We, we talked about how it, it, it illustrates his authority because he, he exercises himself as the king of creation and naming the animals. He's the crown of all creation. But more so, he gives each animal a name so as to reflect the hidden splendor and majesty that is revealed to him about God through every creature. Okay, take a look at a few examples. Let's look at the word dog. Okay, in Hebrew or Aramaic, it's kalib. Very close to the Arabic. When you break down this word, there's two components. Kol and lib. Literally means heart of compassion. Or he who has an emphatic heart. So whenever Adam was naming this dog, what did he see? He saw the heart of God. He saw the compassion of God. He saw this compassionate, tender creature. And I'm telling you, if you have a pet, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Just yesterday, I promise you, I was really tough with my puppy because he was just driving me crazy. I was yelling at him, he wasn't listening. And then I just walked into my room, I was kind of... Frustrated because I, I yelled at him. Like that said, he's never going like, to come near me again. And then like five minutes, I walk back out into the family room. Mello comes running back to me like he hasn't seen me in five years. He's excited. He's like, ah, like let's play. Like in his heart is just so much love, forgiveness. Like he's just so compassionate. All he wants to do is be with his master. When Adam was naming this animal... He saw a glimpse of God. And in naming him, he was reminded of God's compassion. 
Does that not transform Adam? So every time he would see this creature, he would think of God. In another example, the word gazelle, Tabitha, it literally means he who created beauty. You see like the majesty of a gazelle, okay? As, as majestic as it is running and so on, it literally comes from the root graceful or beautiful. So whenever he named this, he saw the beauty of God, how graceful it just walks and runs around. Similar, right? Yeah. Right. The word lamb, this is just even deeper. Okay? In Hebrew, talitha. It comes from the root, like dew or covering, which literally was he who covers me. So he named the lamb even prophetically knowing that this is the Lamb who would cover him. The Lamb that was slain to cover the sins of the world. What I want to emphasize is that we use physical elements because the physical world is sacramental. And this was their initial purpose. This was the reason they were created for us. Okay? Alright, so let's look at the sacraments that we have today. How many sacraments do we have? Okay, we typically say seven. Okay, but before we just take that number and run with it, we share with you something that Father Thomas Hopko says. The practice of counting the sacraments was adopted in the Orthodox Church from the Roman Catholics. It's not an ancient practice of the Church, and in many ways, it tends to be misleading since it appears that there are just seven specific rites which are sacraments, and that all other aspects of the life of the Church are essentially different from these particular actions. Okay, so technically, yeah, we could say, Seven, if we want to number them, but in reality, that's, that's misleading. Because remember, we said the whole life of the church is sacramental. You know, we're, we're, we're always doing something that transforms us in our church. And the Spirit is always working in a mystical way. And we have other prayers. We have things like the liturgy of the water, and the priest is praying for the descent of the Spirit. And then, you know, after we have the liturgy of the water, or, or La'an, Everybody's running to get the water because they know this isn't just regular water, right? There's something sacred about this water. And then somebody says, you know, I'm not feeling well, I'm sick. I just need to drink this water. I'm going to be fine. Where does that faith come from? Because they know that there's something sacred about this water. There is something sacramental. Okay, But we want to relay this to the entire life of the church. Okay? Father Thomas Hopko continues to say, the more ancient and traditional practice of the Orthodox Church is to consider everything which is in and of the Church as sacramental or mystical. Everything in the Church becomes a sacrament, an element for the mystery of the Kingdom of God. Okay? So, 
all the ministry and pastoral work of the church is sacramental. Sunday school, feeding the homeless, etc., everything. The church itself is sacramental. Okay, you don't say that this specific service as a sacrament and everything else is just inferior. And now, of course, th- there is a, like a, a certain priority. Like we say, the, the Eucharist is above all. It's a sacrament of sacraments. But we don't, you know, subordinate the rest of the, the ministries and the functions within the life of the church. When we go to feed the homeless, like St. John Chrysostom says that the homeless is greater than the altar. Because on the altar you have the body and the blood of Christ, but the homeless is himself Christ. So, is that not transformational? Whenever we're participating in the work of the church, just a few weeks ago we did the, the shoe boxes where we, we packed the boxes with gifts for uh, everyone for Christmas, and the children are participating and working and they're serving. The Spirit is definitely working in a ministry like that. Everything in the life of the church is sacramental. Can you imagine life outside of the church? Where would you experience the fullness of the Spirit's work? Okay? Of course the Spirit can work in you know, mysterious ways, you know, ways beyond our understanding, outside of the physical structure of the church. But for us, for what we know, what, what has been handed down to us by the apostles, is that it is in the church that we find salvation. Because it is in the church that we find the sacramental life. Okay? So the church itself is sacramental. The Western Christian, says Father Alexander Schmemann, is accustomed to consider the sacrament as perhaps an essential and clearly defined part or institution or act of the church and within the church, but not of the church as being itself the sacrament of Christ's presence and action. Okay, and, and we're all guilty of this, that we're accustomed to consider the sacrament as perhaps an essential and clearly defined part or institution or act of the church and within the church. We think it's something that the church does, but we don't think that the church itself is the sacrament, that the church itself is the mystery, that the sacramental life is that we have a relationship with the body of Christ in the church. All right, so let's dive into the sacraments. All right, there's no better place to start than with the Eucharist. In Greek, Evcharistia. Right? Why start with the Eucharist? Because it is in the Eucharist that we find the fullness of the sacramental life itself. Okay, so if we're looking at this like an onion and we're peeling layers, we go into the life of the church and then we find the Eucharist and then within the Eucharist we find everything else. Okay, nothing exists within the sacramental life apart from the Eucharist. Everything 
is actually directed towards the Eucharist within the life of the church. And then everything also derives its power, its source, and its grace from the Eucharist. So there's this two-way directional path that we see within the sacraments, that they're heading towards the Eucharist and then they derive all of their essence from the Eucharist. The word that we mentioned in Greece, in Greek is Eucharistia. Okay? What does that literally mean? When I was in Greece, the very first that I learned, the very first word I learned was this word, Eucharisto, which was thank you. Okay? I would say thank you and then welcome is parakalo. Eucharisto, okay? parakalo. Aside from that, I didn't know anything else. But I knew Eucharisto, I wanted to be a nice guy, so I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. Other than that, whatever. Okay? <laughs> but aside from this word meaning thank you, if we dig a little bit deeper and just you know, break down the root of it, we find that there's a beautiful word deep in there, which is charis. Evcharistia. This word is loaded with depth. It literally means grace. Okay? Charis is the Greek word for grace. Ev is good. Right? Like we say, evangelion. Like the good news, the gospel. Ev is good, angelion is news. So the good news. This is not just grace, but it's good grace. I don't know the difference between grace and good grace, because all grace is good, but this is the good grace. Okay? which tells us that we receive this good grace. Not just any grace, but this good grace. The grace upon which every other grace stands. Okay? If we, if we look at the, the Eucharist, we define it as the the purpose of our sacramental life. Okay? The purpose of our life is to live a Eucharistic life. So, Father Alexander Schmemann says, the Eucharist is the entrance of the church into the joy of its Lord. And to enter into the joy, so as to be a witness to it in the world, is indeed the very calling of the church. It's essential liturgia the sacrament by which it becomes what it is. Okay? So, so, every sacrament is validated by the Eucharist and only becomes valid in as much as it revolves around the Eucharist. Unfortunately, nowadays, so many of the sacraments are disengaged from the Eucharist, which is a tragedy. Because that was never the life of the church. Okay? We'll come back. Um, look at what Father Alexander continues to say. He says man was created for Eucharist. For the pure love of God, for the sake of God, for the recognition of God as the content of his very life. As to the answer of all his questions, the purpose of all his desires. 
So in the garden, the tree of life was intended to be the source of our communion with God. Right? We talk about these two trees that were in the center of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. Remember that whenever Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God placed a cherub with a fiery sword and he says, you know, we had to block this entrance from the garden lest they return and eat of the tree of life and live what? Forever. Okay? Because it is this tree that gives eternal life. This is the tree of immortality. So what gives immortality aside but aside from God Himself? Okay? So this tree is nothing but Christ Himself. And we were created with what in our center? The tree. Okay? We were created with the Eucharist in the center of our habitat. So what should be the center of our life? Eating this tree. So we're created to have communion with Him through partaking of the Eucharist, through eating Him. Okay, He is the tree of life. Okay, but that was lost, right? We were exiled from the paradise of joy. We fell. Okay, but what was the fall really all about? Okay, was it just a matter of disobedience? Okay, let's look at what Father Isaiah Shmuel continues to say. In our perspective, however, the original sin is not primarily that man has disobeyed God. The sin is that he ceased to be hungry for him and for him alone. Ceased to see his whole life depending on the whole world as a sacrament of communion with God. The only real fall of man is his non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. Okay, this was the essence of our fault. It wasn't just a matter of making a mistake and disobeying God. The essence was that we were disconnected from the Eucharist. We were disconnected from the purpose of our life. He says, in Christ, life, life in all its totality, was returned to man given again as a sacrament and communion, made Eucharist. So in order to restore that which was lost for us in the garden, He brings that tree right back to us. Where? Not in our room. You know, the, the, the room is one of the best places in the world to meet Christ. Away from our distractions, away from our phone and our social media and the TV, to connect with God in our personal life of solitude. But that's not the place where the tree of life is found. The tree of life is found where? On the altar, in the church. Okay? Around which all the other sacraments revolve. And there's no need to defend the fact that whatever is on the altar is truly the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, this is just a, a useless you know, discussion for us to have. Christ Himself said it, the fathers, the disciples, the apostles, everybody understood that when you come to break bread, to have liturgy, you eat of this bread and this, and drink of this cup, 
you're not just taking a symbol, you're taking truly his body and his blood. St. John Chrysostom says, When the Lord says, This is my body, be convinced of it and believe it, and look at it with the eyes of the mind. Since the soul is interwined with the body, he hands over to you intangible things that which is perceived intellectually. Okay? So he says, You're a physical and a spiritual being, but grace, the body and the blood of Christ, God Himself, immortal and eternal life, is invisible. So how can it be translated to physical creatures? He says that He hands over to you intangible things, in physical things, that which it is perceived intellectually. Grace, grace which is beyond our intellect, is given to you in something tangible. Why? Because you're physical creatures. So he says, how many now say, I wish I could see his shape, his appearance, his garments, his sandals. Only look, you see him, you touch him, you eat him. How profound is that? What we have in the altar is so far greater than anything the angels can think of having. And it had to be through eating because it is through eating that we have the essence of our sustenance. Eating has always been much more than um, a, a ritual or something we do just to live Like whenever you want to hang out with someone, you say, let's go get something to eat. Okay? Why? Because there's something a little bit more special. You're not just going because you want to feed yourself. You're going because around this meal, there's fellowship. Okay? And and fellowship implies something greater than just a ritual. The accusation brought against Christ was that He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Why? Because eating implies association. Eating implies identification with everybody at that table. Eating wasn't just for the sake of food and for the sake of survival. Eating for every generation has been a sacred matter. Okay? The priest prays around the middle of the liturgy of the faithful. He says something that you know no one really hears because it's prayed inaudibly. But it's called the epiclesis. I'll share with you this prayer. He says, We ask you, O Lord our God, we your sinful and unworthy servants, that your Holy Spirit may descend upon us and upon these gifts. That your Holy Spirit may descend upon us and upon these gifts, and purify them, change them, and manifest them as a sanctification of your saints. A lot of times we walk into the liturgy thinking that the essence of it is the transformation of this bread and wine into the body and the blood of Christ. But what the priest is praying for here is not just about the transformation of bread and wine into body and blood, but he says that you may descend upon us and upon these gifts. Change them, and manifest them as a sanctification of your sins. So we are changed. We become that body and the blood. We become His eyes, His feet, 
his mind, his hands. We become his lips, his ears. We become all that is Christ. The purpose is not for me to walk into the church and a loaf of bread and a cup of wine is transformed into something entirely different, but then I walk out just the same as I walked in. <laughs> What's the purpose of all that? The purpose is that I walk out as Christ. I walked in as Father Joseph, but I walk out as what? As Christ. That's the very purpose. St. Irenaeus says, After partaking of the Eucharist, our bodies are no longer corruptible, having the hope of eternal resurrection. If, if you look at Acts, the life of the church, everything was centered around the Eucharist, around the breaking of bread. The apostles didn't really understand this when they were in Christ, whenever they were with Christ. We look at the, the end of Luke's Gospel, as the two, Luke and Cleopas, are walking on the road to Emmaus. And this man they come across, who we know turns out to be Christ, is talking to them for hours. Like, this is Christ Himself. He's giving them the sermon of a lifetime. Like, if there could be a sermon of all sermons, this would be it. And they still had no idea who He was. When did they realize that this was Christ? It says, Now it came to pass, as He sat at the table with them, that He took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew Him. And He vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us on the road and while He opened the Scriptures to us? They knew something was just special about this man, but they couldn't put their finger on it. What gave them this knowledge? What revealed His true self to them it was this sacrament. That's why this is the sacrament of all sacraments. Okay? We'll take a break and we'll come back to the rest of the sacraments. We're back. We're going to start with baptism. Okay? So I'll just jump into a reference from Romans. And we're going to see this throughout the rest of the sacraments. That everything has a scriptural foundation, a scriptural basis, as the disciples and the apostles practice the sacraments, not only within the tradition of the church, but within the scriptures. Okay, So, Romans 6, 3 and 4, St. Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Therefore you were buried with Him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. This right here, is the best definition of baptism. Burial, resurrection. Okay? It's not about receiving the Spirit, which we always confuse. Okay? That comes in chrismation, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but for, for, for baptism, it's about the resurrection of the new man. Okay? Putting to death the old man, that's why we're submerged in water. It's like you're, you're killing something. You're submerging it. You're burying it. 
Okay, you put to death the old man. And whatever is baptized, whether it's a child or an adult, like re-emerges out of the water in new life, like the resurrection. What do we always wear when we come out of the baptismal font? White, right? Why? Because white is a symbol of the resurrection, symbol of purity. We're washed, we're made new. Baptism is about renewal, about rebirth. Okay? We say that baptism is the sacrament of entrance into the church life. Okay? Especially in relation to the church body. Okay? Not only is the individual that's being baptized entering into the sacramental life of the church and participating in the sacraments through baptism, but he is now integrated into the rest of the members of the church. What kills me, and I'm telling you, this kills me. It's so tragic that baptism now has become an individualized event. Okay? It, baptism is unfortunately now confined to an individual function. It's a current tragedy. Whenever we hear that, that there, there will be a child baptized next week, do we all set our alarm that morning for 6.30 or 7 to make sure we're there to attend this baptism? We don't, it doesn't even cross our mind. We're so disengaged from whoever is participating in the sacrament. If it's our family member, our friend, we're all there. Right? But what we fail to realize is the unity of the church, especially as it relates to the sacramental life. Because this child that will be baptized is baptized into the body of the church. And how is he baptized into the body of the church if the body is not present? Okay? So there's, there's a privatization of the sacraments. And we're going to talk about how this, uh, this tragedy exists in the rest of the sacraments as well. But we got to understand the problem here. And we got to be a part of the solution. Okay? We got to encourage one another to participate in all the sacraments together. We say that it takes a village to raise a child, right? But it takes a church to raise a saint. Okay? When the child is baptized, the members of the church are, are as much a part of that baptism as the child himself. Because the body of the church, all the members, function as, as mentors and as models for this child. And they participate in the sacrament to renew their own baptism and to accept this responsibility of, of raising this child within the, the spirit of the church. Okay? Not only is it, you know, individualized, but a lot of times we'll see it dissociated or disintegrated from the sacraments. We don't understand that 
the very purpose of, of baptism and the rest of the sacraments is that they're fulfilled in as much as they are completed in the, sac- in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Okay? It's easy to see the connection between baptism, chrismation, and the Eucharist. Okay? You wouldn't imagine somebody goes and they're baptized, they're chrismated, and then the family just goes home, they have breakfast or lunch, and they say, forget about the liturgy and the Eucharist. Okay? That doesn't really happen. So the disintegration from the Eucharist isn't as obvious there because we still preserve it quite well. Okay? But you'll see this tragedy much more explicitly in other sacraments. But we've got to understand that just as this model exists in baptism, directing our path towards the Eucharist, it has to exist as the same model for every other sacrament. Okay? Baptism is, is for the remission of sins, okay? A lot of times, in, in the early church especially, there, there were more adult baptisms. So, the, the person would have actually been a sinner, okay? But when we say that baptism is for the remission of sins is not always to identify the child as a sinner. Because we're not born with this original sin in the sense that we are guilty of committing the sin that Adam sinned. Okay? Yes, we can be liable to inheriting the corruption and the sinfulness of this broken nature. Okay? And in that sense, our sinful nature is buried and we receive remission of sins through baptism. But when we say that baptism is for the remission of sins, we don't understand it in the sense of original sin like we saw develop in the West and to say that every human being is born a sinner as if he is guilty of committing the sin of Adam. Okay? There's no personal liability there. That's why a child born and God forbid just dies before baptism, it would be the most absurd thing in the world to say that this child is just going to rot in hell because he wasn't baptized. It's, it's absurd. Okay? It totally defies what the church taught. St. Gregory of Nyssa wrote an article called On Infant Deaths, and he makes it very clear. Okay? So, typically, the sacrament would occur on Easter. Okay? And it would be pre- preceded by a period of a catechism. Okay? Almost like what we're doing here, like this Orthodoxy 101 or whatever. But, the, the catechumen, the novice, the person that is now preparing for receiving this new birth, entering into the church, would be living in the church, participating in the life of the church in a reserved way because he can't participate in its fullness by, particip- by partaking of the Eucharist, but he would learn and, and prepare and 
try to grow, you know, understand what the church life is all about, learn theology and everything, so that he can be prepared to fully integrate into the life of the church. Right now, we receive this grace as infants, but this this can only really materialize in as much as we realize it and cultivate it. Okay? And we'll get into that whenever we talk about chrismation. So we see in chrismation that the child is anointed. Okay? The word chrismation comes from chrism. Literally it comes from Christ. It's almost like Christified or or Christianized. Okay? Chrismated is to be made Christ. What does Christ literally mean? Anointed one. Okay? Christ means the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that is anointed, the one upon whom the Holy Spirit descended and the voice of the Father testified saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? This is the chosen one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, St. Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Okay? Because the anointed one is the one who is filled with the Spirit. Okay? The one who is chosen, consecrated, dedicated, as a vessel for God. If you look at the Old Testament, whenever God tells Moses to consecrate the temple, what does he do? He takes the oil and he consecrates the temple and in doing so, whatever had this oil placed on it is now dedicated for worship and for worship alone. Okay. Now that it's been consecrated, it's been set aside, it's been made holy, it's been sanctified. So when I am chrismated, I am dedicated to God and to God alone. I am His. I'm integrated into the life of the church and for that life alone. In Romans 8, St. Paul says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. So, when Christ was anointed, chosen, God testified of Him that this is my beloved Son. He says the very same words of us when we are chrismated. We become sons of God. We become co-heirs with Christ. We inherit all all that belongs to Christ because the same spirit that filled him fills us okay that's profound <clears throat>
Okay? We are entitled by His grace to all that belongs to Him. Father Thomas Hopko says, In chrismation a person is given the power from on high, the gift of the Spirit of God, in order to live the new life received in baptism. He is anointed, just as Christ the Messiah is the anointed one of God. He becomes, as the fathers of the church dare to put it, a Christ together with Jesus. Thus, through chrismation we become a Christ, a Son of God, a person upon whom the Holy Spirit dwells, a person in whom the Holy Spirit lives and acts, as long as we want Him and cooperate with His power and holy inspiration. In the Catholic Church, there is this sort of ritual that they call confirmation. Okay? Something where the individual will go through like a more formal catechism. Okay? And in that sense, it's more so a process of realizing this grace that we've received so that we can cooperate with Him and commit to that which we have received. Because the Spirit works within us in as much as we allow Him. Okay? The Spirit doesn't just fill the one who's baptized and then possess his soul. Okay? There's freedom on the individual's behalf. Okay? He has to freely accept that which was granted him and cooperate with the grace that he has now full access to. Father Thomas Hopko says, The mysteries of baptism and chrismation, called officially holy illumination, are fulfilled in the immediate reception by the newly enlightened of the Holy Communion in the Eucharistic Liturgy of the Church. We call these sacraments the sacraments of holy illumination. We are illumined. But we receive the holy illumination in as much as we are now granted access to the Eucharist. Okay? We call this, that, like, now we receive sight. We're filled by the Spirit. The veil that we talked about is lifted. It's lifted. The old man is put to death. The new man is born. And now, having been made a place and a vessel fitting for the Holy Spirit, we are filled with the Spirit through the, bap- through the sacrament of chrismation. Okay? So think of the first sacrament almost like you're washing an old dirty vessel. Because you can't just fill it with something precious whenever there's a bunch of dust and dirt in it. You wash it. That's baptism. Now you fill it. Okay? That's chrismation. You fill it with the Spirit because where the Spirit of God dwells, we see the work of Christ. Okay? So, I'll just mention an example from Acts, where we can find the distinction of these two sacraments, because a lot of times we confuse them. Okay? So, we see this example whenever we see Peter going to the house of Cornelius. Okay? We know that Cornelius was a righteous man. He was a just man. He was living by the law, but he didn't know Christ. Okay? And he was told by God to go to this man and to preach to him the message of the gospel. Okay? So, in Acts chapter 10, 44 to 48, 
while Peter was still speaking these words, you know, he's preaching to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Okay, so he's just speaking to him about the gospel, and then the Spirit descends upon the Gentiles, and they're astonished because we know that salvation belongs to the Jews. These were people outside of the Jewish nation, the Gentiles. Okay, now the Spirit descends upon them. It's an exceptional occasion. You know, we have so many exceptions. A lot of times we see even in the sacrament of, uh, of baptism that we can have exceptions where someone who's not a priest who has performed the sacrament or administered the sacrament. But these are exceptions. In this case, the Spirit just comes and fills them. Okay? So he says, For they, were, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. It's strange because they were just filled with the Spirit. You would say, okay, all right, it's all good. What, what more do you need? He says, okay, they still got to get baptized. Okay, so typically we have baptism first. Okay, Peter and what happens in Acts is our model. And we see here that he didn't say, okay, they're all one and the same. Forget it. But he baptizes him. Why? Because that washing, the renewal, the rebirth is critical. And that's why Christ says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Okay. We get into the sacrament of Holy orders or priesthood. Okay? Holy orders or priesthood. I want to emphasize the significance of priesthood by bringing your attention to another event in Acts. Okay? In this story, we see Peter, sorry, we see Philip having just preached to the Samaritans. And we know the Samaritans are Gentiles, right? So he's preaching them to them the message of the gospel. Okay? So in Acts 8, we see, When they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Again, we see a couple of examples where there are exceptions in baptism. But we see very distinctly what happens next. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Why? So, they just believed, and they were baptized. Okay, Philip can just, okay, finish the job, man. <laughs> just, just give them the Spirit with chrismation. Okay? And, and at that time, it wasn't technically with the Myrun, it was through the laying of the hands. Well, that developed because later on, as the Christians that were entering the church grew, there needed to be a more practical way to administer the sacrament. So the bishops or the apostles that were uh, a part of the priesthood brought the, the holy Myrun and laying their hands on the Myrun, now invested that grace into the Myrun so that the other priest could take this my room and then administer the sacrament through it. But it was always through the laying of the hands. Now, 
Philip could have easily just finished the job. But why does he call for Peter and John? Let's continue in that very same passage. So they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come, prayed for them that they might receive the Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay? Why? Because Philip was the deacon. Okay? So wasn't Philip the apostle? So, he's not a priest. So we see very early in the life of the church, the administration of the sacraments is reserved for the priesthood. A lot of times we come now and we see churches like everybody is doing whatever, like any random person just comes and, you know, they could be a great person. A good, righteous, loving, caring person is elevated to be a pastor and then you see them giving this uh, service called the Eucharist and then they pass around the body and the blood of Christ, which again, in these sort of services is only a symbol or other people are performing the other sacraments. And we see that the church never had this sort of system where everybody's just doing their own thing. There were distinct functions that were reserved for the priests. And Philip, this is the same Philip who spoke to the eunuch and was carried away by the Spirit. Just kind of floated away. This wasn't... (laughs) A, a, a sinful man that lacked any holiness. This was a holy man. It wasn't just any man, but he said, I got a call for Peter and John. Because they're the priests. So the sacrament of priesthood, which, by the way, happens where? In the liturgy. Right after the prayer of reconciliation, the bishop will pause, ordain the priest, and at the end, What does the priest do? Partake of the Eucharist. Because this is where his ministry and his ordination is directed to, the altar. Okay? So, the priesthood is ordained by Christ and reserved for those specific individuals. Father Thomas Hopkins says, the sacrament of holy orders in the Christian church is the objective guarantee of the perpetual presence of Christ with His people. This sacrament is what guarantees the perpetual presence of Christ with His people. The bishops, priests, and deacons, which by the way are the three orders of priesthood, the bishop, priests, and deacons, or or holy orders, deacons aren't technically within the priesthood, but these are the three orders within the holy orders, The bishop, priests, and deacons of the church have no other function or service than to manifest the presence and action of Christ to his people. So the holy orders preserve the apostolicity of the church. That's why if you trace back the Orthodox Church, especially within our Coptic Church, we go straight back to St. Mark himself. Okay? There never came along somebody who said, like, let me just do my own thing. No. You're, you're chosen. You don't just have the idea that, hey, I want to be a priest. 
That's absurd. That's the first thing that will disqualify you. <laughs> and having been chosen, you are now within that line or that lineage of the apostles. Okay? This is instituted or instated by Christ himself. Okay, we see when Christ was speaking to his apostles in John 20, he says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. The words of Christ himself, right there, priesthood is ordained, established. His words, he empowered them with this authority to forgive sins, to loose and to bind sins. We also see here, not just the sacrament of priesthood instated, but the sacrament of what? Confession. Okay? So we'll get into that in a second as well. We'll just wrap up with this quote from Father Thomas Hopko, and then we'll get into the sacrament of confession. He says, as the apostles received the special gift of God to go forth and to make Christ present to men in all of the manifold aspects of his person and work, so the clergy of the church received the gift of God's Spirit to maintain and to manifest Christ's presence and action in the churches. This is the primary function of the church. A lot of people are stumbled by the priesthood. A lot of people are stumbled by just calling the priest father. Okay? And they take one phrase from the words of Christ out of context when he says, call no man father. Okay? Then might as well not have any child call his dad father. <laughs> but they're stumbled by the role of the priest because they, they misunderstand the priest's actual function. They say that he's a replacement of Christ. And in no way did the church ever suggest that. The primary function of the priest is to manifest Christ. Okay? The clergy of the church receive the gift of God's Spirit to maintain and to manifest God's presence and action in the churches. Okay? And without this, we have no sacraments. Okay? Now, for the sacrament of confession. I love this icon of the prodigal son running back to his father. Okay, we look at repentance as one whole process, as, as a whole lifestyle, to be honest. But within repentance, we have a specific sacrament called confession. Okay, it comes from metanoia. Repentance comes from metanoia, which literally means changing of mind. Not just changing of a thought, but like a mindset of, of your whole direction, changing your whole heart. Okay? That's what repentance means. Unfortunately, we look at repentance and confession negatively. And I don't know why, but we just have this dark, dreary idea of repentance. And we should never have this negative view. We should never look at repentance and confession with a negative light. Listen to the words of 
Bishop Callistus Ware, when, when he defines repentance, he says, it's not self-hatred, but the affirmation of my true self as made in God's image. To repent is to look, not downward at my own shortcomings, but upward at God's love. Not backward with self-reproach, but forward with trustfulness. It's to see not what I have failed to be, but what by God's grace I can yet become. How beautiful is that? Now, getting into the specific sacrament of confession that exists within this whole process of confession, we got to look at what this sacrament is really all about in its essence. Okay, And what I want to do to really define the essence of this sacrament is just mention what the priest prays when he's absolving the individual who just confessed. Okay. So, I read for you the very end uh, of the of the sacrament whenever the priest prays the absolution. Okay. This is just the very first half of the sacrament. He says, O Master, Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son and Logos of God the Father, who has broken every bond of our sins through his saving and life-giving sufferings, who breathed into the face of his saintly disciples and holy apostles, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Now also, O our Master, who have given grace through your holy apostles to those who for a time labor in the priesthood of your holy church to forgive sins upon earth and to bind and to loose every bond of our iniquities. Now also we ask and entreat your goodness, O lover of mankind, for your servants, my fathers and my brethren and my weakness, those who bow their heads before your holy glory. Okay, He's praying all of this. And what has he asked for yet? Not a single thing. All of this, he hasn't asked for a single thing yet. What's he been saying? He's been saying a disclosure. He's making a disclosure. The majority of the absolution, and this is by far like 75% of it, is one big disclosure. So the whole first half of the absolution is saying, You, O Lord, ordained the sacrament. And you mandated it. You ascribed this grace to the priest. You told me to do this. Okay? You ordained the sacrament by your own words. So the whole first half is saying, you broke the bonds of our sins through your sufferings. And you gave this grace to your disciples. You told them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. You retain the sins of any, they're retained. So, just as you gave this grace to your apostles, you translated this grace to the priests of your holy church. And this grace is to bind and to loose every bond and iniquity. He's basically saying, I'm not doing something on my own terms. (laughs) Okay? This is your work. And I just don't get how people are stumbled by the sacrament. They come and say, why do I have to confess to a priest 
Okay, well here it is. Okay. Now if you don't understand the practicality of it, that's another story. If you can't wrap your head around it and why, practically speaking, it's significant, yeah, we could talk about that. But if you're going to talk about whether it was instituted by Christ and whether it was mandated to function in this way or not, your proof is right here in front of you, loud and clear. There's no question there. If you don't get it and you just want to understand why Christ assigned the sacrament to be this way, okay, we could talk about that. But don't say that, you know, doesn't sound like we really have to go to a, to a priest to confess. You know, that's a whole bunch of legalities that the church made up. You can't say that. Okay. Only after that, he actually prays the absolution, where he says, Dispense to us your mercy and loosen every bond of our sins. If we've committed any sin against you, knowingly or unknowingly, through anguish of heart. Okay, And continues to pray the rest of the absolution. Again, like every sacrament, it's scriptural. And remember, the epistle that Martin Luther wanted to throw out was James's epistle. Okay, why? Because James is about is about working, and and, and James also <laughs> has the proof for this specific sacrament. He says, "Confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed." How did the apostles understand this and practice it? Through the sacrament. Sure, in the West, it got a little complicated and you know, developed to be a more legalistic system, but it has been preserved in its authenticity, in its purity, in the Orthodox Church. Okay? So we don't come and say, you know, uh, if I committed this sin, how many Hail Marys do I have to say to receive forgiveness? There's no legalistic system like that. Okay? If, if I don't fast, I don't say like, I sinned. Okay? You, the, 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 the consequences, you deprive yourself of that tool. But we don't say that there's a legalistic system in confession. Okay, so, we know that the sacrament existed where within the Eucharist. I say this over and over again. When the priest goes through the procession, he comes back to the altar after going through the whole body of the church with the censer, sensing everything around the seats and the pews, comes back to the altar and he says, O you who accepted the confession of the right-hand thief, accept the confession of your people and grant them the forgiveness of their sins. Let it be for the sake of your name, according to your mercy, O Lord, and not according to our sins. So he says, just as you accepted the confession of the right-hand thief, accept the confession of your people. And he prays this because, well, he just took a whole bunch of confessions. And he's now taking this whole load right back to where the altar. He's unloading everything. He's saying, I don't know what to do with all these sins. I can't carry them here. You take them on the altar. Your blood is what removes all sins, and he basically senses on top of the altar as he's praying this prayer. At this time is whenever we would see the sacrament. Okay? And I'm telling you, it's so tragic that the sacrament is, 
is belittled as a whole, let alone associated with the Eucharist. Okay? Let's look at the, the development of the sacrament briefly, and we'll talk about the, the, the real significance of the sacrament as it was instituted by Christ, understood by the apostles, and, and practiced within the early church. Okay? So, we know that the sacrament, I'm sure you've heard this before many times, that it was a public sacrament. Okay? That the absolution is still prayed by the priest, but confession was made publicly in the early church. James Dallin, who's a wonderful author that, that really analyzes the development of the sacrament thoroughly, he says this, With the rise of private penance, the community's role was less important. The process of penance had been reduced to a rite understood in its totality almost exclusively juridical and impersonal terms. There was little or no concern for the Spirit, the Eucharist, or the church community. Forgiveness and restoration to grace became the impersonal focus of an individualistic rite. And that's like the best picture you can paint about the tragic condition of the sacrament today. It's just an individualistic rite. We don't feel like our sins are a public offense. But they really are. Like if I think a lustful thought, do I realize that I've hurt the church? Okay? There was this link between the individual and the body of Christ that existed within the church from day one. Okay? So it never existed outside of the Eucharist. And it never existed outside of this relationship between the confessor and the body of the church. All members were considered as they were struggling together, sharing in the same process of recovery, praying for one another. Okay? It wasn't just like, you fell, you go off on your own, confess to your priest, we'll see you later. <laughs> that's, that's nonsense. So, early in the church, there was a focus on the seriousness of sin. Okay, so it was never a private matter. It was serious. It was publicly confessed. Okay, there was a sense of responsibility of each member's impact to the body. Okay, and when the confessor would confess, he's not just reconciled to God. He's reconciled to who? The whole body, the community. There is a corporal reconciliation. How can this happen outside of the body of Christ? Okay? And what was the rest of the body doing during the time of the confession? They felt obligated and responsible for praying for the group of confessors. Okay? They weren't just, hey, it sucks to be you. <laughs> there was a real sense of responsibility. So, although now, in private confessions, you know, we have the system, but it is what it is today for the sake of sparing people from the public humiliation 
that would happen at that time. And to give a more individualized attention for the people. And, and yes, things have developed in the past, but there's reason in, in, and wisdom in the church doing so. We just want to see this development without losing the essence of the sacrament, which unfortunately has been compromised. Okay, So remember that this is a sacrament within the Eucharist. And it never existed in the church without a, a, a real focus within the whole body. Okay? If, if I think of why people don't confess, okay, I think of two primary reasons. Okay? Tertullian, early church scholar, points to the first reason. He says, regarding confession, some flee from this work as being an exposure of themselves. Or they put it off from day to day. I presume they're more mindful of modesty than of salvation. Like those who contract a disease in more shameful parts of the body and shun making themselves known to the physicians. And thus they perish along with their own bashfulness. We become a little ashamed. And so we put it off. Not knowing that the real shame is in continuing with this disease. And that's what sin is. It's a sickness of the soul. Okay? St. Gregory of Nyssa says, Reveal courageously even the greatest of your secrets. Disclose to your elder or the priest the, min- the mysteries of your soul. Disclose to him the mysteries of your soul. As the patient uncovers his wounds to the physician and you'll obtain cure. We see in the sacrament something that always takes place, which is spiritual guidance. Okay? And, and the second reason why we are, are more likely to refrain from participating in this sacrament is because along with the sacrament comes another distinct function in the church, which is to give us the life of obedience to our spiritual guide. And it's not distinctly a part, it's not specifically a part of the sacrament. It's distinct as its own part. Okay? But this is critical as it's associated to the sacrament. Okay? So, St. Porphyrius says, Our elder plays a very important role in our lives. The elder guides our footsteps. He's not simply an an educated man. He's not just some smart man. Okay? We need to recognize what an elder is. He is one who has lived in obedience and has received the grace of God. Such an elder is able to benefit those under him immensely if they are obedient to him. Okay? And because we, are, we shy away from submitting to this life of obedience, we say, no thanks, I don't need to go to confess, because after I confess, the priest is going to tell me what to do. <laughs> I'd rather not. I like doing my own thing. Okay? Or I like to go to my friend and just, you know, we could have like a reading plan together and we could just figure out what, what fits our schedule and, <laughs> and, and, and what we should do according to our own terms. Okay? 
It's not just going to your friend. Okay, your priest is your friend, but he's more than that. He continues to say, Obedience to an elder is a great virtue, a great advantage. It is everything. You must pass through obedience to be a complete person in order to face the difficulties of human life. Without humility and without obedience, you do not have the grace of God. If you do not pass through humility and therefore through obedience, you have a very hard time. Lack of obedience is due to egotism and self-love. And this points to the second reason. It's because our own pride. We sometimes don't want to commit to this life. Okay? He says a, pride, a proud person can never be obedient. He always wants to examine and question what he's told in order to see if it's right or wrong and to respond accordingly. Okay? So I hope we have a better understanding of the sacrament. We'll know that the spiritual guidance is not a specific part of the sacrament. It's distinct from that sacrament. But it's associated with it. You know, whenever I take confessions, I don't have a conversation with the person. He confesses, pray the absolution, and then we talk and then we have a chat and there's the spiritual guidance. Okay? Now, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of sacraments that are left. We have holy matrimony and unction of the sick. Okay? These last two will be a lot quicker. So, I'll start with explaining the sacrament by pointing to the conversation that Christ has with the scribes and the Pharisees whenever they're asking Him whether it's lawful to divorce any wife for just any reason. Okay, so this is in Matthew 19, and I'll refer to verses 4 to 8. So he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, what? it was not so. We see in the essence of everything that Christ is doing throughout his ministry, he is returning man to his former condition. He's bringing our attention back to the way we are intended to live. Things got flustered along the way, and that's why Moses had to do what he had to do. But in the beginning, this union was a spiritual union. It's not a legal contract. Divorce rates are like what? Like like 60 some percent, 70 percent? Second marriages, it rises up to like 80 percent. Because once you, once you feel like, you know, you don't got to stick it out. Say, off to number two, number three. Number... And I'm not saying that the divorce is... Are, are evil, like sometimes, you know, the church recognizes it's mandatory. You know, there are cases where, you know, there, there, there's abuse, there are a lot of evil things that happen that necessitate that, that the divorce happens. But in our culture, we, we belittle this union to like 
a social agreement that we're just going to live together. We don't understand that there's a sacramental union. Okay? So we see this union bound by the Spirit and again confirmed by the two becoming one flesh as this union was practiced in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Okay, again, this, this sacrament unfortunately happens outside of the liturgy. That was never the case in the early church. You know, uh, if you attended uh, Father Daniel and Maggie's wedding, in the liturgy, that's how it always existed. Okay? And then after the two are, are united, what do they do? Go take communion with the same veil. Use the same veil because they're now one, they're one flesh. And explaining this, this union and the, the, the role of each member within this marriage, St. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. <laughs> a modern day secular feminist reads this and they just shrug or laugh, right? But St. Paul doesn't stop there. Like he's got something to say to the men too, right? <laughs> he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see this union. You see the calling, the standard that the wife ought to live to and that the husband ought to live to. Okay? This isn't some social agreement or a legal contract. St. John wrote a wonderful book called Marriage and Family Life. I'll share with you two quick quotes that he says from this book. When a husband and a wife are united in marriage, they no longer seem like something earthly, but rather like the image of God himself. They no longer seem like something earthly. They seem like the image of God himself. Look at how... The fellowship and the union exists within the fellowship of the Trinity. One will, one mind, one authority. Not one person superior or inferior to another. There is unity. Okay? There is cooperation. And when, I, when you see that in a marriage, when you really see that sort of union, that sort of fellowship, that sort of love, it blows you away. You see a couple of people, I'm sure, that come to your attention right now, and you just wonder, like, this is... It's what God looks like. He says elsewhere, the husband and wife should be similar to the hand and the eye. When the hand hurts, the eyes should be crying. And when the eyes cry, the hand should wipe away the tears. You see the cooperation that the two are, are, are always working with one another, affected by the other. Okay? The one identifies 
the weaknesses of the other as his own. Okay? He doesn't think himself as superior or inferior. Okay? This is the unity that ought to exist within this marriage because it is a union of the spirit. It is, again, a mystery, a sacrament. And finally, the unction of the sick. Okay? So like everything we said, this is both scriptural and it exists within the liturgy, within the sacrament of the Eucharist. St. James in 5, 14 to 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the presbyters of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay? In the unction of the sick, we have seven distinct prayers. Okay, we don't have time to get into the breakdown of the sacrament. But, like we just mentioned, it exists within the Eucharist, and so the person, if he's able, you know, the person would typically be sick, but he would be fasting because he's going to partake of the sacraments. Of, and this applies to every sacrament that you're, you're fasting. It exists within the, the, the Eucharist, and it directs you towards partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. Unfortunately now, we see like in deal happening in someone's house in the middle of the day or at night and this and that. And that's, that's a strange development. Okay? It just developed to be disintegrated from the Eucharist. Okay? And, and that was never the case. Okay? So, I want to mention something to just close our, our understanding about this specific sacrament. Regarding the church's view of, of the role of this sacrament in our, in our sufferings. Okay? Because this sacrament is for our healing. It's the unction of the sick. Okay? And it is for healing of body and soul. Okay? We, say, we see here that if someone is sick, and that's a physical reality. Someone being sick, there's a physical sickness. Someone is suffering, there's an illness. Okay, they're in pain. And we see, we see that this warrants for the sacrament. Okay, but the purpose of it is not just to liberate the person from the sufferings of the flesh or the physical pain associated with the illness. Father Thomas Hopko says, the express purpose of the sacrament of holy unction is healing and forgiveness. So it's twofold. So healing and forgiveness. Healing we could look at physically, right? But there's also healing for the soul, which is the forgiveness component. Okay? We don't say that everyone is sick because they've committed a sin. We don't say just because you're ill, you committed some sort of sin. Remember, whenever they're talking to Christ about the man born blind, and they're like, 
who sinned, this man or his parents? Because they're always associating with illness, with a sin. So they're trying to figure out, well, what did he do wrong? The guy said, no, 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 he didn't sin, nor his parents. But this is to reveal the glory of God. Okay? So, he says, since it's not always the will of God that there should be physical healing, the prayer of Christ, that God's will will be done, always remains as the proper context of the sacrament. In addition, it's clear, it is the clear intention of the sacrament that through the anointing of the sick body, the sufferings of the person should be sanctified and united to the sufferings of Christ. Okay? We know that at times, it's simply not God's will to provide physical healing. At times, the reality is, God wants us to suffer for our own edification. You see this exact same model in St. Paul. He's ministering, he's preaching, he needs to move around and, and to be physically functional. And he has this thorn in his flesh and he's praying to God three times. The same man who was healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, is praying for God to remove this thorn in the flesh. What does God tell him after praying three times? My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. I, I want the suffering to produce something greater than just physical healing. It's going to sanctify you. It's going to refine you even more. Okay? I want your joy, I want your happiness, but what you don't know is that the suffering, this suffering specifically, is going to be the tool to produce that. Father Thomas Hopko continues to say, In this way, the wounds of the flesh are consecrated, and strength is given that the suffering of the diseased person may not be unto the death of his soul, but for eternal salvation in the resurrection and life of the kingdom of God. Okay? And glory be to God forever. Amen. So we'll take some questions. Actually, before we take questions, I wanted to share something Arthur mentioned that he said... um, this, this specific phrase that we always use is, is God willing, right? Um, and, and that comes from the scriptures, right? When Christ said to pray God willing if, if it is His will to do so. But it's funny because in Arabic we always say like inshallah, right? And like I remember growing up, I asked my mom and dad to do something. And like can I, can I go here or there or whatever? And they don't really want to say no, but they want to give me like the politically correct answer. Like, inshallah. Kind of like, kind of, we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, I always realize that inshallah means it's not going to happen. Because <laughs> they just don't really say no. <laughs> but yeah, in, in, in our faith, we know that, that it's not just a nice way to say no. All right? it's, uh, it's truly to reveal that our prayers are in line with whatever God wills. Okay? And sometimes He wills one thing, sometimes He wills another. You look at the life of Job, <laughs> He willed a whole lot of sufferings. Okay? For, for, for others, He willed 
healing for others. He, he willed uh, a lot of struggles with work or school or whatever. God gives us exactly what we need to refine us. Okay? Okay. You had a question about grace. So I guess your definition was, what, what is the definition of grace, right? That, that's the right... You were referring to, I've heard two different definitions, so I just wanted to follow where you were going. Okay, so grace in its essence, as we define it generally speaking, is God's unconditional gifts to us. Okay, it's His unmerited, undeserved blessings. Okay, and, and it's not because... We've done anything to warrant what we receive, right? But, but it's, it's His life. Like Father Matthew the poor says, God didn't give us a certain gift of grace. But when He desired to give us grace, He gave us the life of His only begotten Son as the gift of all grace. Okay, so his own life to us, translated to us, is a grace in and of itself, which is the greatest of all grace. So, so in, in its definition of the sacraments, we receive the grace of all grace, right? Which is his eternal life, right? Which is his divinity. We partake of his divine nature. Okay, that's a grace that we receive, not by our own merits. That makes sense. No. So grace, are you saying means the divinity of God, or I've heard it described as God's divine enablement? So is that what? Sure. We yeah, you can put it that way. Okay. I just really shy away from wrapping it up in a specific phrase. Okay. You know what I mean? Because it's really tough. His grace is mysterious. David says in Psalm sixty-three. And it's such a poor translation. He says, your grace is better than life. In every translation, you won't find the word grace. The Hebrew, the Hebrew is hesed. Okay? Hesed literally means like all that is good, your loving kindness, your goodness, your generosity, all that is good. It is grace itself. Okay? In English, it's defined as your loving kindness is better than life. But if we look at this word as grace itself, we see that it is better than life. It's His own body and blood, His dealings with us, His patience with us, His love with us, His unconditional mercies and everything that He gives us. Okay? And He says, if you were to put grace on one side of the scale and all that is good on the other side, all the treasures in the world, there would be no comparison. Okay? Grace would far outweigh all else that is good. Yeah. Any other questions? The, the issue of confession. Yeah. You said it's not a must. It's through Christ. Christ said that it has to be done this way. Yes. Absolutely. And the, and the disciples understood that and how did they practice it? What is this way? This way is that I would go to a priest, disclose my sins, and I receive 
absolution. I receive forgiveness through that process. And in no other way, not just because I made a mistake and I just want to tell God alone because, you know, quote unquote, I have a relationship with God personally in my own room. It doesn't work. That's a disguise for my reluctance to submit to the life of obedience. Why does it have to be face-to-face in some other church? Because confronting the shame is a part of the healing. Oh, she's, I think, referring to like the Catholic Church, where they don't actually see each other, it's through the... Well, it became a much more like legalistic system in the Catholic Church. For us, it's just personal. There's a relationship. It's literally like a, a patient going to a physician. Right now, like people are trying to find remedies for their illnesses by Googling their symptoms. And they think that Google is going to replace the physician. You know, you have some symptoms, they go, what should I take? What medicine? This and that. Okay? And we see that like infiltrating the spiritual life too. You know? It... it it can only happen through the personal relationship. And anybody who in, who's invested in the sacrament and lives by the sacrament will swear by its value. You know, whenever you look at the Olympic athletes, they don't have any less coaches than... The, the, the amateur who's working out and trying to improve his mechanics in some sort of uh, athletics or a certain sport, as you develop and grow, you have more intricate coaching. You have a whole coaching staff because they're fine-tuning every mechanic, right? Like a, a runner, he's sprinting and they're looking at his stride length. They're looking at the, the, the swing of his arms, the way he's leaning, the angles, everything. Why? Because he's trying to perfect whatever he's doing. And can you imagine an Olympian saying, I don't need a coaching staff. That's like a a Christian saying, I don't need a father confession. It's totally prideful. It's totally prideful. And, And I hate to be harsh by putting it that way, but I have to speak truth. I have to say, it is what it is. I have to, and I'm sorry if I I offend anybody, but if I am willing to humble myself to the instructions of my superior, I will more than gladly submit to this path. If I'm resistant to it, I, I don't want anyone to put me in check, to refine what I'm doing. There's a little bit of pride there, Right? And, and this, this idea of living without a father of confession never existed outside of the church. Not until the 16th century with the rise of the Protestant Reformation. So I was like, you know what I think of, remember um, the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Whenever she's, she's, she's talking to him, uh, to, she's talking with her fiancé and, and telling her family that he doesn't eat any meat. right? And so uh, she, tells, she tells her, her aunt, he doesn't eat any meat. And she's like, you don't eat no meat? Like, didn't process. And she says, it's okay, I make lamb. Like, she had no idea that he said he doesn't eat meat because this is such an absurd thought. What do you mean you don't eat meat? 
What do you mean a Christian doesn't have a father of confession and doesn't regularly confess? It's just as outrageous as this vegetarian was to this Greek family. Okay, so, like I hear somebody doesn't confess regularly, I'm like, you don't eat no meat? Like, you don't have a confession, Father? Are you trying to ruin your spiritual life? I'm not putting it dramatically. I'm not making it drastic or anything. Like, I need every tool I can get in my spiritual life. And I more than gladly run to my father of confession. And I know when deep down inside, I'm reluctant to do so. Because it's my pride telling me, I don't really want to disclose that. You know, out of everything that the fathers teach us about exorcisms, they say, out of everything, the most powerful remedy is confession. What the demons hate more than anything else is this condescension where the individual will humble himself to confront his brokenness, his weaknesses, and his shame and say, I did this and that. The demons hate nothing more than that. Okay? And at the end also, I need to hear God's voice through the priest. The yeah. Priesthood God. Absolutely. Priest of all, and, and it went to the apostles. Absolutely. Came to the priests that we have right now. So I want to hear his voice, what he wants to tell me. And, and, and that's where the sacrament works beyond my own understanding because I, I, I can limit the sacrament to say this is just a man. Okay? But I'm telling you, like my own father confession has said the most absurd things to me. And if it wasn't for like God's grace really nudging me into the path of obedience, I would have said that doesn't make any sense. I'm not doing it. And I would have ruined my life. And I could look back in, in very specific cases where my father confession has told me to do certain things and now I realize that that was the voice of God. Okay? And even if the priest is mistaken, do you think God is so limited by the weaknesses of the priest that he cannot communicate to you that which he wants to say through a broken vessel? But if we keep confessing, it means no one obeys at the end because no, it just means it just means we're we're good sinners. We're, it means we're 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 fighting, and that's what a saint is. He's a fighting sinner. He's a repentant sinner. You know, Moses the Black was said to have re- repented or confessed to his father of confession seventeen times on the same night. He kept falling into the same sin. I think that his his father was of a Isidore. At the time, if I'm Saint Isidore, like after number ten, I'm gonna be like, "Come back to me tomorrow." Like, you, you, you gotta work out your own issues or something. But he, he, all too gladly, welcomed him with open arms. He says, "This is the mark of a saint that he keeps running back to the sacrament." That's why Saint Moses was Saint Moses. Okay, the moment we say that I just keep falling into the same sin, there's no point, is the moment I am 
falling into the delusions of the demons. Okay? Not to mention, it can never be the same sin. It can never be the same sin. Right? Think about it. Let's say, I was angry. Okay? I confessed it. Now, a week later, I go to confess that I was angry because a couple days after I confessed, I got angry and I lost my cool. Okay, that's not a repeated sin. It's a new sin. The old sin was forgiven, wiped away. Right? God says, I, even I am He who forgives your sins and your iniquities I will no longer remember. And it was revealed to us in the story of St. Moses the Black when he confessed his sins whenever he first came to the monastery that the angel appeared, literally wiped away every word, every transgression that he confessed. And what, what remains on that slate? Just a clean page. So you go and say something, confess that sin, it's as if it's never been done before. And if, and if the devil comes and tells you, you're a terrible person, you, you, you were angry at, at your wife and you yelled at her. Or you, you, you hit your child because he was driving you crazy. But that was a month ago, you already confessed it or whatever. You respond to that thought and you tell them, that never happened. It's, it's forgiven, forgotten. God has no record of it. Show me, show me your proof. Show me the record. Tell the demons... Prove to me when and where this happened. I confessed, it's done. Okay, and we've got to have that faith. Now, I don't forget the fact that I am a sinner, that I am a sinful person, that I am weak, but i got to forget the specific sins because they're wiped away. Okay? Otherwise, I'm consumed in despair and I never move on. Okay? St. Paul says, Forgetting the things which are behind, I press forward towards the goal. St. Paul could have easily be, been consumed by the murders and the hatred that he had towards Christians. But confessed, moved on. That's it. That's why this, this sacrament is so beautiful. St. John Climacus says, the tears of repentance are greater than the waters of baptism, though it may seem rash to say so. It's just a new baptism. Any other questions? Uh, I'm learning something very interesting. This is the Holy Order, the clergy, spirit, by saying uh, pastors and preachers do not count. You have to be a priest, apostolic, that kind of thing, or, or, or a bishop. If you're not a priest or a bishop, then your role as a pastor or a preacher are... In as much as they pertain to practicing the sacraments, right? So you see someone like Philip or the rest of the deacons, someone like Stephen, right? Stephen the deacon did so much for the church, right? But deaconship, even though it's an ordination, is not one of priesthood. So Priesthood is the ordination for the 
practice of the sacraments. Priest presents Christ. Well, we can all present Christ and give Christ to one another, but in as much as it pertains to the sacraments, only the priest. Yes, only the priest can perform the sacraments. So someone just can't go up to the church and, and pray his own liturgy if he's not a priest. I, if I'm not a priest, I can't just come and, and pray act the unction as, of the sick. Act as a priest. Right. And, and if, I, if, if I do so, um, especially if I do so knowingly, then I actually serve as an offense to God. And we saw this commonly throughout the Old Testament. And we know, even though the, 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 the Old Testament was a little different than the New, that it is the same God. And you see the sons of Aaron came to worship, right? And to offer incense. What happened? No, the sons of Aaron, they were struck with leprosy. Because they were not priests. Lineage doesn't count. No, they were not ordained. Ordained. Yes, they were still young. Priestly line. That's different. The Levites are of the priestly line. Okay. But God made it very clear from day one that there is a specific system. Right? And these aren't boundaries. This isn't to, to, to have... Um, restrictions. Like we said, the sacramental life isn't a religion. It's not a cultic act. Mm-hmm. Right? But mm-hmm. this is f- so that not everyone can just come and do their own thing. So who's, who, is, who is in obedience to this Coptic church? Would you say Catholic church as well? Or not? What do you, you mean in communion? In priesthood and, and bishop. Yeah. So in communion, all of the Oriental Orthodox churches are in communion. But everyone who is outside of the Oriental Orthodox Church, like we said, is not damned. Everyone that is in the Apostolic Churches will believe that there is salvation. Because in, in those churches, there's also the practice of the sacraments. Although they have a different tradition. So because they have a different tradition and they have some differences... Even though the Eastern Orthodox Church is very similar to us, we're not in communion with them. Right? But we believe there is salvation there in the Catholic Church and so on. The Protestant Church, God is still working in the Protestant Church, but there are no sacraments. There's no priesthood. So where there's no priesthood, where are sacraments? Even if somebody comes in a Protestant Church and whenever they... Uh, have their own communion, whatever they want to call it. It's technically not communion. And some person may go to approach and take it in his own simplicity and innocence of heart, you know, and in faith, believing that this is the body and blood of Christ. But but it's not the body and the blood of Christ as it is ordained by the, by the priest. Okay. All right, and glory be to God forever. Amen.